March 8, 2014. Malaysia Airlines Flight 370, a Boeing 777, is on a routine trip from Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia to Beijing, China. 227 passengers and 12 crew members are on board. This red-eye flight took off at 12.42 a.m. and was scheduled to land in Beijing at 6.30 a.m., a five-and-a-half-hour flight. At the controls of the plane are Captain Zahir Ahmad Shah, who has 18,365 flight hours, and First Officer Farik Abdul Hamid, who had 2,763 flight hours. Flight 370 was Farik's final training flight and he was scheduled to be examined on his next flight. At 1.19 a.m., Kuala Lumpur Air Traffic Control instructed Flight 370 to contact Ho Chi Minh Area Control Center, which the captain acknowledged. This was the last verbal communication made from Flight 370. Over the next seven hours, various countries' military radars and automated satellite communications tracked the plane as it turns away from its flight path and flies towards Antarctica before disappearing forever. What happened on board that caused a large commercial plane to simply vanish? And could this happen again? Let's talk about it on this episode of Black Box Down. Hey everyone, welcome to Black Box Down. Uh, as always, uh, I'm Gus and I'm joined here with Chris. How are you doing, Chris? Hello. In the past couple episodes, you know, I think it's, it's pretty clear this is a, a topic that I wouldn't say I'm not an expert on by any stretch of the imagination. It's just a, a topic that I'm very interested in and very enthusiastic mm-hmm. about. And uh, I'm bringing Chris along for... For a ride to, yeah. to to listen and learn things, Chris Chris is is learning as we go here. Yeah, so it just disappeared. Yes, um, it it went off of its flight path and it was tracked for a little while, but then eventually we'll get into, we'll get into detail on this. But eventually uh-huh. the the plane goes out to a very remote part of the ocean where there is no way to really track it, and it's never been found. Whoa! This is a pretty well known incident, I think, uh, in in reading comments on the podcast people have been asking if we were going to cover this one and this one it was tough i wasn't sure whether or not we should cover this one because there is no definitive this is what happened story to it uh-huh there's some pretty good speculation and some pretty well accepted theories but we just simply don't know because the plane has never been found whoa yeah so uh i guess before we dive into it i just want to remind everyone you can uh, always follow us on social media on uh, twitter and instagram at blackboxdownpod Uh, we post a lot of supplemental photos and other uh, material that you know, might not be able to get just through an audio podcast. So highly recommend you go check those out. Uh, if you've listened this far to all of our other episodes and haven't followed, you're, you're in for a treat. You can see a ton of photos uh, that, that highlight the things that we've been talking about. Okay, so flight 370. Uh-huh. Uh, like I said, this flight was scheduled to depart from Kuala Lumpur at 12.35 a.m. local time and arrive in Beijing at 6.30 a.m. local time. And the planned flight duration was five hours and 34 minutes. And they were estimated they were going to consume about 82,000 pounds of jet fuel. And the plane went ahead and loaded up with 108,200 pounds of fuel, which would allow it to fly for, you know, about seven and a half hours. So it's got it's got a good amount of extra. That's a good percentage-wise, right? Yeah. What is that? Like another, you know, about 25% over what it yeah. needs? So it's got a lot of fuel. You know, it has seven and a half hours of flight time for a five and a half hour flight. So plenty of fuel. One, one note I want to give before we start really getting into this, we're going to mention a lot of uh, waypoints. And waypoints have weird names. I'm going to do my best to try to give context where these waypoints are. Uh-huh. Uh, but I'm just, I'm just warning you now. There's going to be several that we're going to mention. So Flight 370 took off from runway 32 right at 12.42 a.m., so pretty much on time. Mm-hmm. And it was clear to fly at flight level 180, which is uh, 18,000 feet. And it was supposed to fly directly to waypoint Igari which is about 275 nautical miles northeast of Kuala Lumpur uh, and about 90 nautical miles off the coast. So when you say waypoint, and just to clarify, that's kind of like 
a straight line to here, straight line to here, straight line to here, just kind of like destinations to kind of break up the flight as far as like the, I don't know, the map of it or the schedule Pretty much. of it? Yeah, okay. like it'll get to a waypoint and, uh, you know, it might change altitude or it might change direction at a waypoint or it might just keep flying straight, but it's just like a marker along the uh, the route. Gotcha. So this particular marker, like I said, was about 275 nautical miles northeast of Kuala Lumpur and about 90 miles off the coast. And it was a, it was in the southern region of the Gulf of Thailand. So it's mm-hmm. this waypoint is out over the water, 90 miles off the coast. Four minutes after departure, Kuala Lumpur Radar Area Control Center cleared Flight 370 to climb to Flight Level 350. So basically, they were they were given permission four minutes into the flight to climb from 18,000 feet to 35,000 feet. The crew reports that they had reached Flight Level 350 at 1.01 a.m. and confirmed again at 1.08 a.m. So basically, took off fine. 19 minutes into the flight, they confirm they're at 35,000 feet. Cool. So they're like, all right, we're good to go, basically. Right. Everything's normal. They had a normal takeoff. They're at their initial cruising altitude. Uh, you know, a lot of incidents happen during takeoff and during landing, it's rare that things happen, you know, when a, a plane is at altitude. So they're at altitude. They're at their cruising uh, altitude. Everything's yeah. fine. I'd heard that like like 90% of plane accidents are landing or takeoff, right? Is that true? I don't know the exact percentage, <laughs> uh, but I, I would say most of them definitely are uh, during, because that's when the most stuff is going on. Okay. Okay. This is something we're going to talk about. This is, this is a mouthful, but I'm going to give you an acronym here. So at 106, the aircraft sent out an automated position report using the aircraft communications addressing and reporting system that relayed how much fuel remained in their tank. It's a long acronym. People just call it ACARS. And it's just a system that the aircraft uses. It's like a digital data link system for transmission of short messages between the plane and ground stations, either via radio or satellite. So it's just like automated messages that the plane's giving off. Like a status update. Hey, I'm here with this much fuel at this point. Okay. Exactly. So at 106, the, the, the pilots don't have to do anything. The plane just automatically does that. It just sends out its uh, position and how much fuel it has. Cool. At 119, Lumpur Radar told Flight 370 to contact Ho Chi Minh Area Control Center, which is, you know, Ho Chi Minh is in Vietnam because they're, mm-hmm. they're going into Vietnamese airspace. Captain Zahir acknowledges, and this is the last verbal communication that's ever heard from Flight 370. Whoa. So this is, what, 37 minutes after takeoff. And he seemed fine when he said it. He was like, all right, cool. Mm-hmm. It was a totally normal response. The exact quote is, uh, Lumpur Radar says, Malaysian 370, contact Ho Chi Minh, 120.9, good night. And Flight 370 replies, good night, Malaysia 370. And that's it. Huh. So basically, Lumpur Radar tells them to contact Ho Chi Minh, tells them the frequency to contact on, which, you know, common. And then Flight 370 acknowledges it and says good night because, you know, they're, they're done talking to that controller. They're moving on to the next one. Okay. So, so far... Everything totally normal, but that is the last contact, that's the last verbal contact that's ever made with the flight. Okay. About a minute later, Flight 370 was observed on radar at Kuala Lumpur as it passed over the Igari waypoint, which they should have. Mm-hmm. Five seconds later, their Mode S signal disappeared from radar screens. Okay, so Mode S, there's a lot of technical information on this, but Mode S, it's basically another way for the transponder to relay information from the aircraft to the ground that provides a lot of information. It's used to relay uh, altitude information to the ground. Uh, it's basically just a, a, an automated system that the plane has to communicate with the ground and, and relay information. That way it can be more effectively tracked. So they just turned off like their tracking, essentially, or one uh, of the tracking devices? That's speculation. Maybe. Maybe it failed. Maybe the plane crashed. Well, the plane didn't cra- We know the plane didn't crash. But um, th- for whatever reason, the mode S signal just stopped. Okay. Uh, I, I, I can't tell you why 
and um, mo- it, it's possible it was turned off, we can go with that speculation. Okay. So at, uh, at 1.20, the MODIS information left the radar screens, and at 1.21, Flight 370 disappeared from the radar screen entirely for both Kuala Lumpur radar and Ho Chi Minh radar when it was near the waypoint Bitad. And Bitad is about 35 nautical miles to the northeast of Igari. So air traffic control uses secondary radar, which relies on a signal emitted by the transponder on each aircraft. And we talked about the transponder before. I don't know if you remember in uh, uh, Air Canada in the Gimli flight. Uh-huh. They, um, their transponder stopped working when they ran out of power. Gotcha. So the transponder was no longer functioning on flight 370 after 1.21 a.m. And if you remember in the Air Canada flight in our first episode, uh, the air traffic control had to use backup radar systems to try to ping the flight since they weren't getting any transponder data. Okay, so this is two things that are now turned off, the ACAR and then the transponder? ACARS isn't turned off, it's the MODES signal. Oh. The MODES and the transponder. The ACARS is an automated thing. We may talk a little bit more about ACARS a little later in this episode. Okay. So at 1.30 in the morning, Ho Chi Minh asked the captain of another aircraft to attempt contact with Flight 370 using the international air distress frequency of 121.5. That other captain for the other plane said he was able to establish communication, but he could only hear mumbling and static. Huh. So they know that you know they've lost contact with the plane, so they're asking other planes in the area to try contacting them, right? It's like, if you can't get in touch with your friend, you might call their neighbors and ask, like, yeah. hey, can you go check on so-and-so? Yeah, so, and, and how long was this after the everything went down? So this is at 1.30. This is about ten 9 minutes? or 10 minutes. Yeah. yeah. So calls were made to the cockpit at 2.39 and at 7.13 in the morning, but they went unanswered. However, they were acknowledged by the aircraft's satellite data unit. So they know that the calls were getting through, but just they weren't answered. Huh. And the final transponder uh, date indicated that the aircraft was flying at its assigned altitude of 35,000 feet and traveling at 471 knots. Uh, There were a few clouds in the area, no rain, no lightning, and later analysis estimated there were still 91,500 pounds of fuel when it disappeared from secondary radar. So the plane was at cruising altitude, flying at a normal speed, plenty of fuel, and it's not responding to anybody. Is it still going the right way? So... They don't know for certain at this point because it's disappeared off the radar. Okay. But you actually asked the perfect question. It's a perfect segue. (laughs) So the transponder stopped functioning. Military radar picked up the flight. And it showed that the flight started to turn to the right, but then began a turn to the left in a southwest direction. So between 1.30 in the morning and 1.35 a.m., Flight 370 was shown flying on a 231 heading, which is kind of southwest. Uh, at an altitude of 35,700 feet and a ground speed of 496 knots. So again, everything's fine as far as altitude and speed. It's just going southwest instead of north now. Yeah. Flight 370 continued to fly across the Malay Peninsula, fluctuating between 31,000 and 33,000 feet. Um, You know, I I, I don't want to speculate too much here, but we've talked about this kind of thing before, where a plane is fluctuating between two altitudes like that. It's almost like a fugoid cycle. Oh, yeah, yeah, where it's going up and then down and then right. up and then down. There's no evidence that this was necessarily a fugoid cycle here, but it's kind of strange. It's fluctuating between those two altitudes. That's purely speculation. How much does it fluctuate? Was it like really quickly or is it just kind of like... So I don't know. Depending on you know how long it took, maybe that's indication that it's not a fugoid cycle. I don't think that it was ever reported what the frequency of those altitude changes were. So, like I said, purely speculation. A civilian primary radar at the Sultan Ismail Petra Airport in Malaysia made four detections of an unidentified aircraft between 1.30 a.m. and 1.52 a.m. that are consistent with military data. 
And at 1.52 a.m., Flight 370 was detected passing just south of the island of Penang, which is a small island off the northwest coast of Malaysia. So, you know, it's flying in the wrong direction, very obviously. Yeah. From there, it flew across the Strait of Malacca, passing close to waypoint Vampi and the island Pulau Perak in the middle of the Malacca Strait at 2.03 a.m. I think we're going to have to post a map on our social media just to show people, give context where this is. But it's out over Malaysia at this point. Okay. And after this, it flew along air route N571 to waypoints Mikar and Nilam, and possibly to waypoint Agogu. So to fly from Vampi to Mikar, the plane would fly a northwest heading, and Nilam is only about 36 nautical miles to the northwest of Mikar, and Agogu is about 100 nautical miles to the northwest of Nilam. Uh, the last known radar detection from Malaysian military radar was at 2.22 a.m. after passing Mikar. Like I said, we'll post a map on the social media. This is just kind of giving you reference for where it is. And these waypoints, these aren't waypoints for that specific flight. They're just like universal waypoints? Correct. Okay. So these are not the correct waypoints. <laughs> correct. It is not going along the, its planned flight path. So the Mikar waypoint is kind of like west of Malaysia, like kind of that Malacca Strait is between Malaysia and Indonesia. Uh-huh. You remember uh, years ago when there was that tsunami at Bandar Aceh, I think is how you say it? Yes, I think so. Yeah, actually. Yeah, that's, uh, it's, it's kind of in that area. It's a little north of there. Okay. So it's, it's kind of, you know, southwest of Southeast Asia. <laughs> so it's yeah, kind yeah. of approaching the Indian Ocean. Okay. An interesting note about this is that other countries were reluctant to release information collected from their military radar because they were sensitive about revealing their capabilities. Oh, they don't want to be like, oh, I saw them because now they now people know how far their radar is or how far right. it doesn't go. Right. Or like they don't want to admit that they didn't see it because then the other countries might know that they have blind spots out yeah. there. So this was a weird thing where countries were, they may or may not have been tracking it, but they would have been reluctant to say because they don't want other people to know how good or how bad their radar is. Mm. So Indonesian military radar tracked Flight 370 when it was en route to Igari before the transponder was turned off, but did not provide information as to whether it detected it afterwards. Generally, is military radar just like a lot better and has a wider radius and stuff than commercial? Well, it might be looking in places that commercial radar wouldn't be looking. You know, commercial radars would be very focused along flight paths. Gotcha. And, right. So yeah, yeah. Th- this plane's flying out in an area where it shouldn't necessarily be. So countries might be sensitive as to letting other countries know how far their radar extends. Okay. Thailand and Vietnam also detected the flight before the transponder was off. And in Vietnam, the Deputy Minister of Transport, uh, I apologize if you speak Vietnamese, I don't know how to say this, uh, Pham Quay Thieu stated that Vietnam noticed Flight 370 turned back to the West and they had informed Malaysian authorities twice on March 8th. Thai military radar detected an aircraft that might have been Flight 370, uh, but it's not known at what time the last radar contact was made and the signal did not include any identifying data. The flight was also not detected by Australia's radar system, nor its long-range over-the-horizon radar system, which I believe they call JORN, uh, which has a range of over 1,800 miles because it was not in operation that night. Oh. Right. So uh, it's not likely the aircraft would have been picked up by JORN radar due to the range limitations and other factors, but in the immediate aftermath of the disappearance, no information regarding JORN status was released, which led to months' speculation. Hmm. And on March 18th, the Australian newspaper, The Australian, said that Jordan was not tasked with looking toward the Indian Ocean that night because there was no reason for it to be searching at that time. On March 19th, 2014, the Australian Defense Department spokesman said it won't be providing comment regarding specific information on tracking Malaysia 370 by Jordan. However, several days prior to this, Australian Foreign Minister Jewel Bishop told the Australian Parliament, 
all our defense intelligence relating to Flight 370 has been and will continue to be passed on to Malaysian authorities. So just a ton of misinformation and... Speculation. You're right, speculation. Uh, so in uh, March 2015, an aviation technology expert... So this is the next year, right? Okay. Uh, because the plane disappeared in March 2014. So the next year, in March 2015, an aviation technology expert, Andre Milne, requested information from Jorn to prove or disprove that the aircraft ended up in the Indian Ocean, but he received no response from the Australian government. And then a year later, in May of 2016, it was finally made public that Jorn was not operational that night. It took over two years for the Australian government to acknowledge that it wasn't operational. And it's a bit of a tangent, but it's just weird that the Australian government was so cagey about saying saying that that. it wasn't working. Right. Again, they maybe don't want to show their hand when it comes to their radar capabilities. Yeah. Okay, that was a bit of a tangent, but I just thought it was interesting. So anyway, at 2.25 a.m., the aircraft's satellite communication system sent a logon request, which was the first message since the ACARS transmission at 107 that we had talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. The message was relayed by satellites to a ground station that was being operated by the British satellite telecommunications company called Inmarsat. The way that it kind of works is the ACARS is being checked once an hour to see if it wants to come back online and communicate information. Mm -hmm. Uh, And all of these pings go unanswered by the cockpit. And finally, at 8.19 a.m., which is one hour and 49 minutes after its scheduled arrival in Beijing, the aircraft sent a final logon request, which was followed by a logon acknowledgement. And this is the last bit of data from Flight 370. Uh, It didn't respond to a status request the next hour at 9.15 a.m. And this is the automatic status update thing? Right. And what time was it? It was 8.19 a.m. was the final logon request. 8.19 a.m.? Right. So this that was like, they must have ran out of fuel. Right. Well, so the next logon request was at 9.15 a.m., which there was no response. So sometime between there is when the plane disappeared, which coincides roughly with the amount of fuel that they had. Yeah. Yeah, because we had said they had roughly seven and a half hours of fuel yeah. um, based on what they had. So, I mean, that's about right. And, you know, this is we're looking at about two hours after they're supposed to land. We said they had a two-hour buffer of fuel. So it kind of lines up yeah. again. Speculation. We don't know for certain, but that's kind of what it appears like. So rewinding a little bit, uh, at 1.38 a.m., which is, you know, shortly after the the plane disappeared uh, or stopped responding, I should say, uh, Ho Chi Minh contacted Kuala Lumpur to ask uh, the whereabouts of Flight 370 and informed them that they hadn't established verbal communication with them. Because if you remember, Kuala Lumpur told Malaysia 370 to contact Ho Chi Minh. At 2.03 a.m., Kuala Lumpur relayed to Ho Chi Minh information received from Malaysia Airlines Operations Center that the flight was in Cambodian airspace, to which Ho Chi Minh asked twice for Kuala Lumpur to confirm this information over the next eight minutes. And then Ho Chi Minh checks with Cambodia, and they said they have no information about Flight 370. And according to Ho Chi Minh, the flight was not going to be routed over Cambodian airspace anyway, so it's like, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. At 2.15 a.m., a Kuala Lumpur watch supervisor was told by Malaysian Airlines operations that it could exchange signals with Flight 370 and that the flight was in Cambodian airspace. At 2.34 a.m., Kuala Lumpur contacted Malaysia Airlines Operations again asking about the communication status, and they were informed that the flight was in a normal condition based on a signal download that it was now located off the eastern coast of Vietnam. Is there like a way for like all the flight airlines and stuff to all communicate and be like, what the hell is going on? Someone tell us. Where... Are they all chattering about this plane? So- at this point, uh, everyone that's talking, it's the different air control centers uh-huh. and the airline, uh, Malaysia Airlines, that are all doing this communication. Okay, and they're all just like, it's like a group chat type thing? <laughs> and they're probably picking up the phone and just and calling each other. 
So so is the airline just like what the hell is going on? Are they freaking out or are they just confused? Yeah, I mean or? they're 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 a little they're a little confused and and the information here, you know, you can tell that they're giving doesn't make any sense. You know, they're telling they're in Cambodia airspace, but the flight wasn't supposed to go over Cambodia. So it's just it, it, there's probably confusion happening at the moment. Maybe they're looking at information in the wrong way. It's just in in the moment people are just confused as to what's going on. It's also the middle of the night. They might not want to wake up their supervisors. Who knows what the state of mind is? Yeah. In fact, at 3.30 in the morning, which is a little later, of course, Malaysia Airlines operations informs Kuala Lumpur that the locations it had given earlier were based on a flight projection and they weren't actually reliable for finding the aircraft. Wait, the Malaysian Airlines said that? Right. Oh. So they were uh, like... <laughs> right. So it's like they were, they were... Who knows if they weren't looking or if they misunderstood the data. It's, it's, it's hard to say. Uh, and at 5.30 in the morning, the watch supervisor at Kuala Lumpur activated the Kuala Lumpur Aeronautical Rescue Coordination Center. And that's a command post at the area control center that coordinates search and rescue when an aircraft's lost. So you see, I mean, it's been hours at this point before they activate search and rescue. Yeah, it'd been like five four hours, hours, four hours. Yeah. yeah. And who knows, it's, it's this miscommunication, this lack of accountability leads to this delay. Not that it necessarily would have helped in this case because no one knows where the plane is. Yeah. But if the plane had gone down, this is the kind of delay that cost people their lives. Again, like we talked about in Japan Airlines 123, where it's like you want to get search and rescue there as quickly as possible when a plane goes down. Yeah. Anyway, that's another tangent. I'm sure everyone's done it. At one point or another, you think of a question, you want to type it into a search engine, but you don't want anyone to know that you're asking about it, uh, whether it's about a rash you have or just some dumb mundane fact you forgot about. And I know what you're probably thinking, why don't you just use incognito mode? Well, let me tell you something, incognito mode does not hide your activity. It doesn't matter what mode you use or how many times you clear your browsing history, your internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited. And so that's why even when I'm at home, I never go online without using ExpressVPN. Uh, it doesn't matter if you get your internet from Verizon, Comcast, Google, whoever. ISPs in the United States can legally sell your information to ad companies. ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers, so your ISP cannot see the sites that you visit. ExpressVPN also keeps all your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. Uh, most of the time, I don't even realize ExpressVPN's on. It just runs seamlessly in the background, so easy to use. You just tap one button and you're protected. ExpressVPN is available on all devices. It's phones, computers, smart TV. Uh, there's really no excuse for you not to be using it. So protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by CNET and Wired. Visit our exclusive link at expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown. You get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown. Expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown to learn more. Did you know two out of three guys will experience some form of male pattern baldness by the time they're 35? The best way to prevent hair loss is to do something about it while you still have hair left. You can get treated from home. You used to have to go to the doctor's office for your hair loss prescription. Now, thanks to Keeps, you can visit a doctor online and get hair loss medication delivered right to your home. You make it easy and deliver your medication every three months so you can say goodbye to pharmacy checkout lines and awkward doctor visits. Uh, Keeps offers generic versions of the only two FDA-approved hair loss products out there. You may have tried them before, but probably never for this price. And don't forget, prevention is the key. Keeps treatments can take up to four to six months or more to see results, so it's important to act fast. The sooner you start using Keeps, the more hair you'll save. If you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, go to keeps.com slash blackboxdown to receive your first month of treatment for free. That's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash blackboxdown, keeps.com slash blackboxdown. Find out why Keeps has more five-star reviews than any of its competitors and nearly 100,000 men 
Trust Keeps for the hair loss prevention medication. Keeps treatment started just $10 a month. Plus, for a limited time, you can get your first month free. Just go to keeps.com slash blackboxdown. So at about 7.24 in the morning, which is about an hour after its scheduled arrival in Beijing, Malaysia Airlines issued a statement saying that Flight 370 had been lost by Malaysian Air Traffic Control at 2.40 in the morning, and the government had initiated search and rescue operations. They also said neither the crew nor the aircraft's communication systems related a distress signal, uh, indications of bad weather, or technical problems before the aircraft vanished from radar screens. Hmm. On March 24th, which is uh, you know, just over two weeks later, Malaysian Prime Minister Najib Razak gave a statement announcing he had been briefed by the Air Accidents Investigation Branch. And the branch, you know, along with Inmarsat, which was that um, satellite company, uh-huh. had concluded that the airline's last position before it disappeared was in the southern Indian Ocean. And since there was nowhere for it to land out there in the middle of the ocean, that it must have crashed into the sea. And Malaysia Airlines announced that Flight 370 was assumed lost with no survivors. And uh, if the official assumption is confirmed, then the disappearance of the flight was the deadliest aviation incident in Malaysia history until... Flight 17 was shot down by a missile, which is another one that we covered uh, yeah. back in episode four. And incidentally, I think I mentioned this in that episode, uh, Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 disappeared in the same year that Malaysia Flight 17 was shot down. Oh, man, Malaysian Airlines had a bad year. That was, that was a bad year. On March 19th, 2014, CNN reported that witnesses in the Maldives saw the missing airliner. A fisherman claimed to have seen an unusually low-flying aircraft off the coast of Cotabaru, which is a city on the eastern coast of the Malay Peninsula. An oil rig worker who was 186 miles off the coast of the Vietnamese city of Vung Tau claimed he saw a burning object in the sky that morning. An Indonesian fisherman reported witnessing an aircraft crash near the Malacca Straits, which is on the west coast of Malaysia between Malaysia and Indonesia, like I talked about earlier. And the Daily Mail reported that a Malaysian woman on a flight across the Indian Ocean claimed to have seen an aircraft in the water near the Andaman Islands that day. And three months later, the Daily Telegraph reported that a British woman who was sailing in the Indian Ocean claimed to have seen the aircraft on fire. Okay. Do those all corroborate each other or are they all... Okay. Some of these don't make any sense with the information that we know. Like the oil rig worker who says that he saw a burning object in the sky that morning. You know, I'm not saying he didn't see a burning object in the sky, but, you know, if that plane was on fire, it would not have been able to continue flying for several more hours. Gotcha. And we know the plane was still flying for a few more hours. Yeah, it's kind of like maybe that thing where uh, whenever there's someone's looking for something or there's a missing person, all of a sudden there are all these like false reports. And right. Oh, I saw this. Oh, wait, maybe I saw this. Everyone thinks they saw it or uh, interpret things weird. Right. Okay. It's not necessarily they're they're lying or have yeah. any malicious intent behind what they're saying, but it could be that they're reading too much into something that they wouldn't have paid attention to otherwise. Yeah. Maybe a, an orange bird. And you're like, oh my well, God, was, something's burning in the sky. Well, I was thinking maybe a meteorite or okay. something well, that like might that. Well, that would also make sense. Right. <laughs> and, and these locations that these, all these people claim they saw these things are all over the place. There's no real consistent location to any of them other than being, you know, in the same general part of the world where the plane might have been. Yeah. So soon after the disappearance of Flight 370, a search and rescue effort was launched in Southeast Asia, uh, but that was moved to the Southern Indian Ocean a week later after analysis of the communications between the aircrafts and satellites. Between March 18th and April 28th, 19 vessels and 345 sorties by military aircraft search over 1.8 million square miles. Damn. Uh, and a sortie is just a deployment of a military unit that has a mission. So they flew 345 missions. At this point, they're not even, they couldn't find survivors, right? They would just be looking for the wreckage to try and understand. It would be very unusual if they were able to find survivors. Because at this point, you know, this is starting on March 18th, which that alone is 10 days after the flight disappeared. Yeah. And it's cold where they're at, right? Um, it's pretty tropical there. 
and the specific area they're searching, I, I, I don't know. I got to say, I'll plead ignorance there. I've never been to that part of the world out in the Indian Ocean. Uh, but I don't think it's probably not that cold where they are. Okay. But 10 days. Right. 10 days minimum. So it would be really unusual. And the search was coordinated by the Joint Agency Coordination Center, which is an Australian government agency that was established specifically to coordinate the search effort and locate Flight 370. And it involved uh, Malaysians, uh, Chinese, and Australian governments. So they're all working together. Yeah, they're all working together to try to find this, um, this plane. So the search from March 18th to the 27th it focused on a 118,000 square mile area. These numbers all sound really big. So I tried to look up some frames of reference to put these uh, mm-hmm. to, to scale. Like I said, between March 18th and 27th, they were searching 118,000 square miles, which is about the size of New Mexico. That's pretty big. It's, it's a big space that they're searching. Yeah, that's pretty big, but there's just so much ocean. Right. Yeah, it's huge. And this particular patch that they were searching was about 1,600 miles southwest of Perth, which, you know, is on the western coast of Australia. Yeah. Uh, and it's renowned for strong winds, hostile seas, and really deep ocean floors. Hmm. None of those are good for search no, parties. not good. Uh, satellite images from March 16th to 26th show several objects of interest and two possible debris fields, but none of this was found by aircraft or ships. On March 28th, the search moved to the northeast after revised estimates of radar track and remaining fuel on the flight. And between April 2nd and 17th, they tried to detect the aircraft's underwater locator beacons that are attached to the flight data recorders. Uh, The batteries were expected to expire around April 7th, so they tried to really find it before the batteries died. So when they're searching, they're like pinging out, trying to locate this device that still should, in theory, be sending out a signal? Right. Well, it's not that they're pinging. They're listening for the ping from the device. Gotcha. So the the devices, the the black boxes issue um, pings so that they can be heard and found. So they're trying to they're trying to listen for them and find them. But you know the battery is supposed to die around uh, April seventh, so they knew they had to try to find it quickly. Hmm. Australia, China, and the Royal Navy provided a ship each to help find the beacon. Uh, operators considered this to be a shot in the dark due to the vast size of the search area and limitations on how much that they could actually search in a single day. Between April fourth and eighth. Several acoustic detections were made that were close to the frequency and rhythm of the sound emitted by the underwater locator beacons. Hmm. A sonar search of the seafloor near the detections between April 14th and May 28th, but there was no sign of Flight 370 was found. In a report from March of 2015, it was revealed that the calendar life of the battery for the underwater locator beacon had actually expired in December 2012. What? So wait, there was no battery on the... There was a battery, but it should have been replaced. So it probably wasn't as effective as it should have been. So it may not have even been making any pings. Or- it might not have, but who knows? It, it, it's hard to say. There was an error in computer data, so the battery problem went unnoticed during maintenance. So it's possible it was still operating, but maybe just not to its full effectiveness. Maybe it would operate less effectively, it would discharge more quickly. It's like when you put an old battery in your remote. It's like it might work for a little bit, but yeah. you're going to have to replace it again eventually. So in late June 2014, plans for a new underwater search started as analysis of Flight 370 satellite communications were refined. This area was along an area known as the 7th Arc, and this is a line on a map of possible positions where the aircraft went down due to possible fuel exhaustion. So again, you know, like we were talking about earlier, the time frame makes it seem like there's fuel exhaustion. They're using satellite data to try to figure out what path could it have been on. And so when you say underwater search... Are, what are they looking for? They look for debris on the surface of the ocean. Yeah. And uh, they also do have, you know, submersibles and uh, underwater sonar and radar to try to see what's on the floor of the ocean. So gotcha. they're, they're really trying to look in any way they can to find evidence of this flight or evidence of the plane, I should say. 
So this arc I was talking about, the seventh arc, it curves through the eastern Indian Ocean, south of the Indonesian island of Java, and towards Antarctica, and it's between 300 and 1,800 miles away from the Australian west coast. So if you think about a map, there's really nothing out there west of Australia. It's just a lot of ocean. Yeah. Um, the priority of the search area was in the southern part, and equipment uh, used to search for the wreckage was known to be most effective when at 650 feet above the ocean floor and was towed by a six-mile-long cable. So, like I said, they have equipment that they're basically dragging underwater above the ocean floor trying to, to map it out. How effective is this normally? Is this like a pretty long shot, right? So normally if they had a better pinpoint on where the plane was, they could probably find it. And there are plenty of other incidents, I'm sure we'll eventually cover them, where you know plane wreckage is found in this manner. Sometimes it does take a long time, uh, but they can usually find it. But they just haven't, it's such a wide span of area that they're searching that it's like. Right, here they're just kind of guessing as to where they should be looking. Yeah. And that's, that's really what's exacerbating this problem. So from May to December, they have an 80,000 square mile area of the seafloor that was surveyed and charted. And 80,000 square miles is the size of Minnesota. So uh. they surveyed the seafloor and charted it, uh, an area that's equal to, the, to Minnesota. You know, it's huge. Was this refined area, did it overlap with the New Mexico area? No, this is a, a different area that they're looking at. The uh, earlier area was earlier uh, in the year, immediately after the plane disappeared. This is the updated area uh, along the seventh arc that they're starting to look at at this point. They, they, they use satellite data to refine where they should be looking. And on October 6th, Malaysia, China, and Australia began searching 46,000 square miles of the seafloor using three vessels equipped with deep water vehicles that use sonar, echo sounders, and video cameras to try to locate and identify aircraft debris. And this other space that they're looking at is the size of Mississippi. Oh, man, they're just... Yeah, they're, they're looking everywhere they can. Uh, and between January and May of 2015, a fourth vessel participated using an autonomous underwater vehicle that could search areas that the other three vessels couldn't easily search. So at the end of July 2015, which is what, about 15 months after the plane disappeared, a piece of debris was found on a beach of Reunion, which is an island off the eastern coast of Africa. Hmm. So, you know, uh, like down on the southern part of Africa, there's that little island. What is that? Uh, Madagascar that sticks out down there? Yeah. That's just east of Africa. Reunion is just east of there. Are they certain that it's from the flight? Well, the Australian Transport Safety Bureau reviewed drift calculations, and they were pretty satisfied that the current search area was still the most likely crash site based on finding this. Yeah, they were convinced that this piece of debris was definitely from the, the plane. How big of a piece of debris is it? So we're actually going to cover the debris uh, in just a bit uh, okay. and, and specifically what it was. Uh, however, on January 17th, 2017, the three countries announced suspension of the search. At this point, you know, it's been almost three years since the plane disappeared and they can't find it. Yeah. In January 2018, which is the next year, U.S. company Ocean Infinity announced that it planned to resume searching for the aircraft in a narrowed 9,700 square mile area, which is the size of Maryland. The search was approved by the Malaysian government, provided that payment would only be made if the wreckage was found. So who's funding it then? Is it just this company that's just like, we want to try and find it? Exactly. So all of these searches up until now had been funded by uh, governments. This one, the, uh, the company itself funded it with the promise that they would get paid by the Malaysian government only if they found the wreckage. Hmm. So the company must have been pretty confident that they could find it. But, you know, four months later, by the end of May of 2018, Ocean Infinity had searched over 43,000 square miles, which is the size of Louisiana, using eight autonomous underwater vehicles. And on May 31st, their contract with the Malaysian government had ended. 
and the search came to an end. They didn't find the plane, so they didn't get paid. Damn. In March of 2019, which is about five years after the plane disappeared, the Malaysian government stated it was willing to look at any credible leads or specific proposals regarding a new search. Ocean Affinity stated they're ready to resume search on the same no-fee, no-fine basis. Uh, the Malaysian government has yet to decide uh, whether or not they're launching a new search. Man, that one company, talk about like sunk costs. I mean, yeah, like, <laughs> like literally, literally, yeah. Who knows what data they had, but they must have felt fairly confident. You know, that's not cheap to get boats and people and autonomous vehicles all out there yeah. looking. It sounds like millions of dollars. Yeah. By October of 2017, 20 pieces of debris believed to be from the plane had been recovered from beaches in the Western Indian Ocean, 18 of which were identified as being very likely or almost certain to originate from Malaysia 370. And the other two were assessed as probably from the accident. So 18, they can say almost definitely. Two, they're like, most likely. Yeah. On August 16th, 2017, the Australian Transport Safety Bureau released the analysis of satellite imagery collected two weeks after the disappearance of Flight 370, classifying 12 objects in the ocean as probably man-made. And they also released a drift study of the recovered objects identifying the crash area to the northeast of the main underwater search zone. So based on where they find all of this debris, they're trying to track backwards the drift to figure mm. out where it all could have come from. Yeah, because now they've kind of narrowed down where the flight might have been and all the debris. So they're kind of like... Mm -hmm. So you were asking about that first item of debris that was positively identified. And uh, it was it was what's called a flapperon. So a flapperon, it sits between the flaps on the aileron on the wing, and it kind of does the job of both a flap and an aileron, which is why they call it a flapperon. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've talked about flaps. Flaps extend uh, during takeoff and landing to provide additional lift and easier control. And ailerons are used for flight control surfaces when the plane is in flight. So it's pretty big? So I can't find the exact dimensions listed anywhere online. Based on the photos that I see, like th this piece of debris that they found, it took four people at the beach to pick it up and carry it. It oh. looks like it's probably six feet long and maybe three or four feet wide. So it's big. Yeah, it's a pretty big uh, piece of the plane. And uh, it was found at the end of July 2015, like I said, on a beach of the French Republic island of Reunion, which is located in the western Indian Ocean and off the east coast of Madagascar. On September 3rd, French officials announced that the serial numbers found on the flapperon linked it to the flight with certainty. Ooh, so that's definitely it. Yeah, so it's most definitely. After searching the waters around the island, French police found a suitcase that might be linked to the flight as well, and a Chinese water bottle and an Indonesian cleaning product. Hmm. On August 14th, it was announced that no debris that could be related to the flight had been found at sea, and the search ended on August 17th. So they definitely found some things that were 100% from the plane and some things that were probably from the plane uh, that washed up on the beach. Gotcha. In February of 2016, which is almost two months after the plane disappeared, an object with no step stenciled on it was found off the coast of Mozambique by an American named Blaine Gibson. No Wait, relation to our Blaine Gibson. Oh, oh, yeah, because he didn't someone contact him asking him to talk on a podcast thinking it was... They did. Yeah. So just a, a weird, uh, weird coincidence. Yeah, we have a coworker named Blaine Gibson. That's I guess we should explain those. that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it was, it's just a, a weird coincidence. And uh, this object was sent to Australia, where experts identified it as almost certainly a horizontal stabilizer panel from Flight 370. Hmm. And also in Mozambique, a guy by the name of Liam Lauder found a piece of debris in December of 2015, but he didn't turn it in until he read about the piece that uh, Blaine had found. Blaine Gibson had found. Hmm. This object had a stencil code of 676EB, which is identified as a part of a Boeing 777 flap track fairing. 
and the style in which the lettering was painted on to the fairing matched the stencils used by Malaysia Airlines, which means it almost certainly came from Flight 370. So they know that it's a part of a Boeing 777, and the style in which the letters were stenciled on was the style that Malaysia Airlines used. So they can't say 100% it was from the flight, but seems probably. pretty probable. It would be weird for him to find this piece otherwise. Yeah. In March of 2016, more debris was found on the island of Reunion. Uh, Australian and Malaysian authorities were sent to verify if it was from the plane. And in the same month, debris was found in South Africa that had a partial Rolls-Royce logo and is believed to be part of the engine cowling. Remember I told you in an earlier episode that if you look out the window on your plane, lots of times you see that Rolls-Royce logo on the engines. Mm-hmm. It was one of those logos. Ah. Uh, and on the island of Rodriguez, which is east of Madagascar, debris was found that is believed to have come from the interior of the aircraft. On June 24, 2016, a piece of debris was found on the Pemba Island off the coast of Tanzania that was confirmed to come from the plane by Malaysia's transport ministry. And in November, families of the victims announced that they would search for debris on the island of Madagascar. And between December 2016 and August 2018, five pieces of debris were found that are believed to be from the plane as well. So... They're finding a decent amount of debris from the plane out there. Yeah. So pretty quickly after the plane disappeared, Malaysia formed a joint investigation team that consisted of specialists from Malaysia, China, the UK, the US, and France. And the communication between the flight and the Inmarsat satellite provides the only significant clues to the location of the plane after disappearing from radar because they were flying out over the ocean where there's really no radar coverage. Remember, we talked about that briefly in one of our earlier episodes as well, I believe the Korea Airlines uh, 007 flight. Yeah. So aeronautical SATCOM systems are used to transmit messages sent from the aircraft's cockpit, as well as automated data signals using that ACARS that we talked about earlier. The aircraft uses a satellite data unit to send and receive signals over the SATCOM network, and the satellite data unit operates independently from other onboard systems that communicate via SATCOM. The satellite data unit, I'm just going to start calling it the SDU, just because it's kind of a mouthful, just so you know. (laughs) So when the SDU is first powered on, it attempts to connect to the Inmarsat network by transmitting a logon request that's acknowledged by a ground station. And this is used to determine if the SDU belongs to an active subscriber and to identify which satellite should be used for transmitting messages. After connecting, if no further contact is made for an hour, the ground station transmits a logon interrogation message, uh, which they call a ping. And if the terminal is active, it pings back automatically. They call this a handshake. You know, because they're like, they're basically communicating like, uh-huh. hey, you there? Yeah, I'm here. And wait, they're doing this when? This is uh, just periodically. Remember I talked earlier about the logon request with yeah. the satellite? It was yeah. happening about once every hour or so. Yeah. So like I said, they, they, they refer to this as a handshake. And the plane made several handshakes, like I talked about, like roughly every hour. Um, yeah. And they make some deductions because of this. The aircraft's SDU needs locations and track information to keep its antenna pointed toward the satellite. So it can be deduced that the aircraft's navigation system was working because it knew how to position itself in order to transmit the messages using the SDU. Hmm. And like I said earlier in the episode, a logon message was sent at 819 from the plane, and there would only be a few reasons why the SDU would transmit this request. If it was power interruption, a software failure, a loss of critical systems providing input to the SDU, or a loss of link due to the aircraft's altitude. Because you know this was a seven and a half hours of flight time, Fuel exhaustion is pretty likely, you know, and in this case, once they run out of fuel, like we talked about before, the rat would deploy to provide some power to systems, one of which is the SDU. So it's speculated that maybe the plane ran out of fuel just before 8.19 a.m. and the rat popped out and turned on the SDU that sent that signal, but then the plane crashed before another ping could be made in the next hour. So that last ping might have been like, it might have already been out of fuel and it was just kind of like going on its way down, but had popped out. 
Right. The rat activates and uh, powers so, up the SDU again. And so that last ping that you said uh, that was at um, 819, what was mm-hmm. the one before that? Like how big of a gap between that last one and the one before it? So the previous handshake request was uh, just a few minutes earlier. It was at 810 a.m. Gotcha. So that might have been the automatic one that happens every hour. And then the rat might have done a separate one. Correct. It's possible. And the, again, and you know, we all this is all speculation. And the rat, for people who didn't listen to the other one, it's like a little, like, little, it's a cool little thing that pops out. It's like automatically, it gives power to the plane because of wind. Like right. It's, it looks like a, a propeller that pops out from the plane. And the force of the wind hitting it spins it and it creates power, kind of like a windmill, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it, uh, it doesn't create a ton of power, but it creates a little bit of power to power critical systems on the plane. Thanks for <laughs> reminding me to explain that. I, <laughs> I forget. I feel like like it's it's almost like a, a course we're going through here. Like we've established things, and you know you're learning as you listen to more episodes. Yeah, I was the one who was like, "Let me explain to you about yeah, the rat." We, we should have a quiz for you at the end. Yeah. <laughs> well, I will be way more likely to remember uh, parts of the plane that are named after animals. I just want to let that <laughs> okay. You know, <laughs> good, good to know. So one of the possibilities to what happened is that the plane had a loss of power early in the flight. An analysis of the characteristics and timing of the SDU ping suggests that a power interruption is a likely culprit. So this is like they're saying what we think happened overall is a power interruption? Well, so the Australian Transportation Safety Board said that power interruption was not due to engine flame out, but that it might have been manually switched off. This is back at, the, at 119 at the beginning Correct. of the flight. Right. And uh, they also conclude based on their own analysis that the crew likely suffered from hypoxia and the plane was likely on autopilot, but there's really no consensus on that amongst investigators. So that's a big question mark. They were having hypoxia, the lack of oxygen at 119, you think? I don't know. It's hard to say. Oh. <laughs> it's just it's just one of the, the speculations that they have. Mm. And you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of theories. And uh, there's another theory that there was an attack from two passengers because there were two men who boarded the plane with stolen passports. Uh, the two men oh. had entered Malaysia using uh, Iranian passports, but they boarded the plane using Austrian and Italian passports. Uh, and the two ordered the cheapest one-way tickets to Europe that they could find via telephone in Bangkok, and they paid for it all via cash. Uh, however, it's pretty widely accepted that the two men were probably asylum seekers and not terrorists. So that's just one of those fringe theories that some people have. Gotcha. Uh, U.S. officials thought the most likely explanation was that someone in the cockpit had reprogrammed the autopilot to fly across the Indian Ocean. Uh, Malaysian police searched the homes of the pilots and they seized financial records from all the crew members and they conducted more than 170 interviews with family members of the pilot and crew. Captain Zahari was deemed the prime suspect, actually. The FBI reconstructed deleted data from his home flight simulator, but the Malaysian government said that nothing sinister was found. Hmm. And in 2016, a leaked American document showed a route that was on Zahari's flight simulator that closely matched the projected path of Flight 370. And this was confirmed by the ATSB, but they stressed that this did not prove the pilot's involvement. But it is suspicious that he was doing a flight simulator for a random flight out in the Indian Ocean, right? Right. It's suspicious, but it doesn't necessarily prove anything. And of course, there's another theory that maybe cargo was the culprit. The plane was carrying 487 pounds of lithium-ion batteries, and the batteries were packaged in accordance with uh, the guidelines, so they were not marked as dangerous goods. But, you know, these batteries can cause fires if they overheat, and they have caused crashes. But like I said earlier, typically if there's a fire on a plane, that brings the plane down fairly quickly. Yeah, or they might have like seen it. Yeah, uh, I don't buy that theory very much. I think it's just another one of those possibilities. Yeah, could have been an orange bird. Could have been an orange bird. On March 8th, 2015, uh, the Malaysian Ministry of Transport 
issued an interim report that focused on providing factual information about the missing airplane, but did not give any insight onto what might have happened. On July 2nd, 2018, they released a final report without any new information, but they did indicate errors made by Malaysian air traffic controllers in their limited efforts to communicate with them. Uh, but still, not much is known about why the plane flew west and then disappeared. Hmm. Like I keep saying here, in this report, they just wanted to focus on the facts. And yeah. there really is no conclusive fact as to what happened here. So the leading theory is the captain did something? The captain may have done something or... You know, maybe there was a hypoxia event and, you know, they, they lost the ability to, to think clearly and adjusted the flight path and then lost consciousness. Yeah, and didn't know that they were going nowhere. Because you said, yeah, because whenever they tried to communicate and they just heard mumbling, right? Right, right. What kind of mumbling? <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know. Was it like... It's a, a weird question. <laughs> but there's like angry mumbling or confused mumbling. I, I, I don't know. I don't think I've ever heard. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that that's ever been released. I don't think oh. there's any actual recording of that. But uh, all, all I know is that it was mumbling. Hmm. So it, it could be it was intentionally done or it could be there was an accident that caused a loss of pressure and the plane just kept flying at altitude. So as a result of this, tickets for Malaysia Airlines dropped quite a bit. You know, before this, the airline was already struggling financially, and this contributed greatly to the loss that they already had. Uh, the airline was given $110 million from insurers to cover initial payments to families and for the search efforts. You asked earlier, you know, yeah. who pays for it as part of it. Each of the passengers next to Kin received a payment of approximately $175,000 with a grand total of about $40 million overall. That's not very much money. For an like accident a like loved this? one dying? Yeah. It like, just seems like not that much. Right. Like, can you imagine if you lost someone and then you're given that check? You're like, well, I mean, thanks, but I, I would rather have my, yeah. my person I knew here. It just seems like 170 doesn't seem like that much for a, right. a family member dying. Right. And uh, the indicated market loss for the flight, you know, including the search, was total about $350 million. Damn. Uh, the country of Malaysia actually renationalized the airline of September of 2015. Because remember, they had this, then they had uh, Flight 17 get shot down. So, you know, the, the airline ended up being nationalized. So it went from private to public. Government run. Mm-hmm. Uh, in response to this flight, the International Civil Aviation Organization began working on new ways to track aircraft in flight in real time. By November of 2018, the uh, International Civil Aviation Organization adopted a new standard that all aircraft over open ocean are to report their position every 15 minutes. All new aircraft built after January 1st, 2021 are to have autonomous tracking devices that could send location information once per minute in distressed circumstances. Dang. So you see how slow things move. I mean, this is seven years after the plane disappeared. Yeah. And it's like the, the ones coming, you said 21, 2021? Yeah, yeah, we're not even there yet. I guess things move slow when you have million-dollar vehicles. Yeah, I mean, these are super expensive. Uh, and in May of 2014, Inmarsat offered its tracking service for free to all aircraft equipped with Inmarsat satellite connection, which is pretty much almost all commercial airlines. And they changed their satellite handshake time from one hour to every 15 minutes, you know, in order to try to keep better track in the future. Is it possible to, like, disable all those things? Or is there some that are just, like... Some of these systems are pretty... Difficult to get to. I mean, yeah. I, I want to say they're impossible to, but I can't say that with certainty. It would yeah. be extremely difficult to, to disable some of these. Yeah, it seems like there's like three or four different ways to communicate mm-hmm. on a and plane. Some of which are automated out of the pilot's control. Yeah. Another aftermath from this is that uh, there's an increase in underwater beacon locators battery life from 30 days to 90 days was implemented. That's good. 
Yeah, the International Civil Aviation Organization also suggested that for aircraft manufactured after 2020, cockpit voice recorders will be required to record at least 25 hours of data. Also, aircraft designs will need to incorporate means of recovering flight recorders or their information before they sink, whether this means for the info to be streamed somewhere or for the flight recorders to be ejected from the aircraft and float. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of speculation and unknowns involved with this aircraft. And it's possible over the years that new information will come up. But, you know, it's been, what are we, six years now, and it's still a huge mystery. No one knows with certainty what happened to that flight. Yeah, so seems unlikely unless there's some sort of weird, I mean, black boxes, they don't float, do they? No, they would be um, sunk with the rest of the plane. They should make them float. That's that's well, a well, well that's that, I mean that's one of the th- you mean you, you kind of say it jokingly but that's all that's one of the things that the uh, International Civil Aviation Organization said was you know maybe they they have to be ejected from the aircraft and float during a crash yeah but I think the most likely solution would be for data to be streamed you know with internet connectivity mm, that's that's good right because a lot of these systems are are old they predate internet or they predate you know the widespread use of satellite technology you know we have a lot more coverage these days so it would make sense to me that they would want to use that new technology yeah well that's it i wish uh there was more of a conclusion of the story it's 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 really an interesting one and uh it's a huge mystery yeah man it's just one of those things you always wonder is like what would it have been like to been on that flight yeah who knows who knows if the passengers you know if there was a hypoxia event you know did people use their masks did the masks come down uh, if there wasn't a hypoxia event and the, the passengers were aware, you know, how long was it before they realized something was wrong? I Did mean, they ever realize something was that's wrong? That's the thing is like, could they have gone the whole time and not realized that they were not on course? I think eventually you realize it, right? When you're just over the ocean, they shouldn't have been over the ocean that long based on the flight path. Yeah, I guess like by the last hour or two, they probably were aware. They were still flying long after they should have landed, you know? Yeah. But again, maybe the pilot, if if it was some malicious pilot, he could have been like, all right, hey, we're going to circle the thing, have a couple, you know, blah, blah, blah. He could, I don't know, who knows? Yeah, but again, they were over the ocean. They, You know, if someone looks out the window, they'd be like, isn't Beijing, <laughs> you know, in, in China? And not- <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. That's a good point. Good point. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's a uh, it's 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 a big mystery. Hopefully we learn more in, in the future. But at this point, don't know. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it, everybody. Uh, thanks for listening. This has been uh, another interesting episode of Black Box Down. If you like the podcast, I highly encourage you to tell a friend to subscribe and uh, give us a rating wherever you get podcasts. The maximum number of stars possible, please. Yeah. All and five or 10 or whatever. The whatever the scale is. A hundred. And make sure you follow us on social media at Black Box Down Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And what would be great is if on whatever device you're listening to this suit, in the top right corner, there's a little like ellipses and you hit that and then you hit share. And you can post it. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Do that. Absolutely. Share it with everyone you know. All right. Thank you guys for listening. Yeah. Thanks a bunch. Hey, everyone. We're going to take a short break from our weekly release of regular episodes, but we will have some great bonus episodes in the meantime, including an interview with someone who was on one of the plane crashes we've talked about. So be on the lookout for that. If you like our show and want us to be able to keep making it, please tell your friends about the show, especially to people who like true crime podcasts. And also recommend our show on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, Friendster, whatever you like to use. There are a lot of podcasts out there and your word of mouth is our best bet at making an impact. And if you're looking for something else to listen to, you should definitely check out Gus and my other shows, the Rooster Teeth podcast and Good Morning From Hell. 
The Rooster Teeth Podcast is a weekly talk show hosted by Gus, and I'm in it too sometimes, where we discuss gaming, films, the internet, and all sorts of weird stuff. Good Morning from Hell is a comedy podcast where I'm dead and forced to interview everyone in hell as my eternal punishment. Just search for The Rooster Teeth Podcast and Good Morning from Hell wherever you listen to podcasts. Finally, thank you for listening and supporting us. We will be back very soon. Thanks.